Psalm chapter 8 starts with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it says, Out of the mouth of babes, you have established strength. And then it ends with the last verse in Psalm chapter 8 with the same statement, Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name of God is majestic. And then in the New Testament, you read, there's only one name that's given to us, the greatest of all name, that is the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we are saved. That's the name that we hail as majestic in all the earth. God is majestic. And say amen to that. Amen. Let me give you one thing to pray and consider this coming summer. June 30 to July 3, that's June 30 to July 3, that's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we're partnering with our sister church in Orlando, it's Life Connection Church, where we will go to a medical-slash-children's mission in Cuba. That's right, in Cuba. That's one hour and a half flight from here, where we are going to send medical services for free to our brothers in there. We have a contact church, sister church in Cuba, in Kamagi, the south of Cuba. They really badly need help. Now, if you can imagine, since 1959, they were stuck. So... You know the vintage cars in Miami, right? Little Havana. Imagine Cuba having vintage cars because they were stopped since 1959. Now, according to some research, the average salary of government employees, that means doctors and teachers, if you're a teacher, listen, the government salary, the average, is $50, U.S. dollars. In 2020, it's $50. In 2022, it doubled to $100. That's the average salary. So imagine this, an opportunity that we can go and send help for free and inspire them and give them hope. So I'd like to pray for this. You don't have to have a medical experience or medical become a medical professional to, to join this, but we can accommodate anyone who wants to experience sending hope and love to our brothers and sisters in Cuba. If you're interested, that's June 30 to July 3, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, then let me know, and we will give you details after that one. Now to our sermon today. Now, if this is new to you, again, we are still in the book of Samuel. We have been preaching on the book of Samuel. Uh, our series is called Lessons from Asking God the Wrong Thing. And, and the idea is that Whenever we ask God for something, there are possibilities that we may be asking God the wrong thing. So we have to correct this. And there are lessons that we can learn along the way when we read the book of Samuel. We have started with Samuel 1, and now we are in Samuel 14. Last Sunday, we are in 13. Let me give you a recap just so that we can pick up uh, the idea where we're coming from. Samuel 13 is when... Saul, the Bible said that Saul blew the trumpet. It's a rallying call for all the Israelites to come because they will have a battle against the Philistines. So Samuel, sorry, Saul, King Saul, blew the trumpet and told the Israelites that he attacked the garrison of the Philistines, although it was his son Jonathan who did that. It was a rallying call because the Philistines took it upon himself, themselves to say, enough is enough, we will now annihilate the people of Israel. Now, what's interesting here is that in chapter 13, before Saul went to battle, they have to wait on the Lord. The protocol for, for battle is that they have to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to offer sacrifices and inquire of the Lord the strategy of war. 
But seven days passed, Samuel did not appear. And so Saul impatiently offered the sacrifice. He had three reasons for doing this. Number one, his soldiers are starting to desert him. Number two, Samuel was late. And number three, the threats of the Philistines starting to grow. So he took upon himself to start or initiate the sacrifice. And just right at the moment that he finished sacrificing, Samuel came and said, What have you done? This is a dilemma of Saul the king. And just when that happened, Samuel said, The Lord has rejected you and has sought for himself a replacement king who will be after his own heart, who will do what the Lord wants rather than you. This is where we picked up our sermon for today. The rejection of Saul is the rejection of the people. See, to understand it better, the bigger picture is that it was the people who asked for Saul. Therefore, when God rejected Saul, God was rejecting the choice of the people. That's the whole picture of Samuel chapter 13. Now, the story ended with the scene that Samuel walked out on Saul. He walked out on Saul. That means there's no more help from the Lord. There's no more instruction from the Lord. There's no more strategy for war. Saul is on his own. He is in big trouble. He's still king. He still has to do the job. But he has no prophet to direct him or to inquire of God what to do. He's in big trouble. Now, even though Samuel rejected or God rejected Saul, but he gave him hope before he, came, he went out. He said that the Lord has rejected you, but he has sought a man after his own heart. That means there will be a, a, re, a representation of God, a replacement for Saul. Now, before we jump to chapter 14, let me give you the clear picture of what defines the defiance of Saul. Why did Saul really, why did he initiate the, the request, the sacrifice? Why did he break the protocol? Now, the word for today is expediency. I'm not sure if you heard this word, but this is a familiar word, expediency. The dictionary defines expediency as the methods that produce an immediate result or solution to a problem, but may not be fair or honest. Expediency. Or it can be encapsulated also in the phrase, the end justifies the means. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter how, what matters is the what, the result. The end justifies the means. And the reason why Saul broke the protocol and offered the sacrifice instead of Samuel was because of expediency. It worked for him, but he broke the protocol. The narrative of the battle is about expediency. The character of Saul was about expediency. The choice of the people to ask a king is about expediency. And so in this story, I'd like to clarify and amplify what expediency is all about. Let's, let's read chapter 13, verses 19 to 22, as this is the setting so that we can catapult the story. 1 Samuel 13, 19 to 22. If you have your Bibles with you, cell phones, Bibles, iPads, you can read with me. It says, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third for the shekel 
for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan had, and his son had them. Now, very interesting. <laughs> they are poised for battle, but they have no weapons for battle. How are they going to win? It's impossible. Now, it seems like the narrator is setting us up, to leading us, us to, to the point so that we can see that this battle is impossible to win. Now, the threat from the Philistines is overwhelming. If you read the, the passage in chapter 14, what you will read is that the enemy had enough of everything from Israel. And so they gathered all the Philistines, and they were able to gather 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers as many as the sand on the seashore. The exact phrase was like the sand on the seashore. When was the last time you heard this phrase? Genesis, right? Abraham. So when, when God chose Abraham, Abraham was old. His wife was barren. They have no children. But then God said, I'm going to make something new here. I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of nations. I'm going to make a nations out of you, but you will have to trust me. And one day, one night, he was looking up the skies, and God said, like as many as the stars of heaven, your descendants will be as many as the stars of heaven, and as the sand on the seashore. That's where we get that from. God promised that Abraham will be a father of nations like the sand on the seashore. But what's interesting here is that at this point, the Israelites are not like sand on the seashore. It's the enemy who's like sand in the seashore. In fact, if you read the passage, from 3,000, Saul had 2,000 soldiers. Jonathan has 1,000. On the eve of battle, people deserted, and the, and the, the only uh, number of soldiers left were about 600. Now, 600 against 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers as many as the sand on the seashore. And they have no weapons. How, they are gonna, how are they going to win the battle? It's impossible. And so it's like the, the narrator is telling us it's impossible. It's like adding insult to the injury. Very few of them, and yet they have no weapons. The opening of chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, tells us this. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. doesn't mean a lot to us, but it means them. The people who were with him were about 600. <laughs> All that's left was 600, including, special mention, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Why is it important that the narrator mentions the name of this priest with Saul? Now, let me break this down for you. We already know that Samuel walked out on, on Saul, so he has no more direction from God. He needs someone to replace Samuel, so he took Ahijah, the priest, to ask the Lord for him on his behalf. Ahijah is in his pocket. He's like a politician now. He's got the priest on his pocket. But Ahijah is very interesting. He's got a reputation. Ahijah is connected to Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. 
Now, those three people are very, have very colorful uh, reputation. Ichabod, Phinehas, and Eli. Let me, let me break this down for you. What does this mean? But then it mentions also that, that uh, Saul was staying in a pomegranate cave. The pomegranate, the pomegranate fruit is a symbol of festivity. It's a symbol of Rosh Hashanah, the new year. So whenever the Jews talk about Rosh Hashanah, the pomegranate tree, it's about festivity. It's new beginning, fresh beginning. So when Saul was staying in the pomegranate cave, it's like saying, it's like in our contemporary uh, situation, we, they have banners and sounds and music. It's like a, a very festive campaign. See, Saul was trying to portray that there's going to be a victory, pomegranate cave. But then it mentions Ahija. Now, three, three names are mentioned. Ichabod, Phinehas, and Eli. Eli was the high priest and prophet that, that died tragically because he was corrupt. So Samuel replaced Eli. He died tragically. Phinehas was his son, one of his sons. He also died tragically because, again, he was corrupt. Phinehas had a son. His name is Ichabod. Now, when, when the Ark of the Lord was captured in battle, the news came that Phinehas died. The news came to Eli. Eli had a shock of his life fell backwards, died tragically. Two deaths in one. And then the wife of Phineas was having labor at that time. And when she heard the news, she was so devastated that his father-in-law died, his, her husband died, and then the ark of the Lord was captured. So when the baby came out, he, she named her son Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory of God has departed from Israel. There's no more presence of God in Israel. There's no more favor of God in Israel. This is like, this is like the worst, worst bad news, the worst news ever. So think about, about this. Every time that the Hebrew literature would mention words three times, it means complete, like holy, 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 complete, like uh, verily, 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 or truly, 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 Yeah? So when it mentions Ichabod, Phinehas, and then Eli, it's rejection, rejection, rejection. Because all of those things have something to do with rejection. Now, what's interesting here is that when it mentions the name of Ahijah, it's connected with rejection. It's like total rejection because Eli was rejected, Phinehas was rejected, the Ark of the Covenant represents the symbol of God, represents God. And the departure of, sorry, the capture of the ark is the departure of the glory of God. So rejection, rejection, departure of glory, it's like what's left for Israel? Nothing. So it seems like the narrator is telling us that this, this war, this battle of Saul against the Philistine will have only one ending. Israel will lose. Now, very disturbing is the name of Ahijah again. Now, with all this combination, we have Saul, the rejected king. We have Ahijah, the rejected priest. And we have 600 soldiers with no weapons. Like, this is like everything that's put in here is going one direction. Israel will lose. It's going to be a tragedy. And maybe this is what Saul had in mind when he was contemplating on what to do, how to win this battle. 
Now, if you think about this carefully, it, it looks like the narrator is setting us up onto something. There's no way of win on any of this. Now, why is that? Because in the first place, Saul has put the people before God. He has clearly disregarded the protocol. And in his own words, because Samuel was late, the army was deserting him and the Philistine threats was getting on his nerves. So he offered the sacrifice. And his only reason for that is expediency. He put the people first before God. The end justifies the means. I think this is also the underlying issue of worship. You see, worship is about pleasing God. So as king, whose loyalty will Saul stick to? Will he remain loyal to God or will he remain loyal to the people? Will he remain loyal to God who chose him or will he remain loyal to the people who asked for him? Who is he, who is he going to please? Will he please God or will he please the people? I think we can also, we can also think along these lines about our faith and our relationship with God. You see, if we are to flourish and grow spiritually, we have to set our priorities straight and ask the same questions. Where does my loyalty lie? Who am I loyal to? Will I maintain honesty and integrity in my workplace because I represent Jesus? Will I maintain honesty and integrity in my home and implement justice and righteousness among my children because I represent Jesus? Or will I allow the pressures of the world to dictate my lifestyle because I'm more afraid of the people than more afraid of God. Expediency. What would be the basis of our choice? What works? You see, this same dilemma is demonstrated in chapter 14, of which, again, Saul made another mistake. His first mistake was breaking the protocol. In chapter 14, he made another mistake. Let me read to you verse 6. It says, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of this uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, what's happening here? Now, as they were camped, nobody's moving because, because Saul was waiting for a strategy from the Lord and he doesn't know what to do. His son Jonathan and his armor bearer, just two of them, tried to sneak out. They wanted to, they're, they're like thinking, what are we doing here? We cannot stay here all day. We have to do something for God. We have marching orders. We have to do something. So they sneaked out and Jonathan said, let us go over to the Philistines. I mean, this is a suicide mission to begin with. But his principle is very clear. He said, it may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What could be going through his mind? Now, I suspect that, that there are stories in his mind that he was thinking about, that he was trying to remember, that made him decide to go to the Philistines and attack the Philistines. He was probably thinking about Moses and Aaron, just two people who stood against Pharaoh and resulted to the redemption of the people of Israel. He was probably thinking about Joshua, who led the people of Israel to surround and walk around the city of Jericho seven times and blow the trumpet 
He was probably thinking about Gideon who led 300 soldiers against 120,000 Amalekites. I mean, this guy knows the story of Israel. And I was thinking, if God can save by many or by few, maybe I can do something about it. It doesn't matter if we're just two. Because God can save by many or by few. Jonathan had this in mind. Now, militarily speaking, Jonathan and his armor bearer was on a suicide mission. Why? They were against 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, and foot soldiers, as many as the sand on the sea. I mean, when I was studying this, I was trying to imagine the scenario. I was trying to set it up in my mind. And I cannot help myself but think of Mission Impossible. I was thinking of Tom Cruise. I mean, I think Jonathan and his armor bearer is the OG of all Mission Impossible. So I was, so the other day I was playing the, the, the theme song, so the theme song of Mission Impossible. I was playing with, you know, all the symphony, all the orchestras. And I was, while I was playing the, the theme, I was imagining myself, you know, Jonathan was climbing down the, 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 the valley and then climbing up to, to Mi'kmaq. Let me show you the map of Mi'kmaq how this is mission impossible. So what you're looking at is the city of, is the arrow that points to Mi'kmaq terrain. The Mi'kmaq is where the Philistines are stationed. The Israelites are stationed in Gibeah, and there's a, a valley that separates them. It's very steep. Now, there's an arrow also pointing to Boses and Zenes. The Boses and Zenes were the, edge, the edges of the cliff where the armies are separated. So they cannot attack each other unless they go down the cliff and then go up again to the other side. Let me show you a closer picture of Boses and Senes. You see, the difficulty of those terrain is how I call it suicide mission because Jonathan and his aide had to do this on broad daylight. The Philistines can see that they are going down the cliff and climbing up to where the garrison of the Philistine is. This is a suicide mission. And yet they do this because Jonathan believes that God can save by many or by few. He said, it may be that the Lord will work for us. I mean, look at this guy. Why is he talking this way? Because one, he's not the anointed one. He's not the anointed king. He's not supposed to be doing this. He's supposed to be Saul. But he has the audacity to do this. Why? God can save by many or by few. Secondly, why was talking this way? Because he knows from the sermon last week that Samuel already walked on Saul. There's no direction from God. We have to do something. And third, he knows the character of God. He knows that God will not abandon his people for his namesake, chapter 12, verse 22. So when Saul, contrary to Jonathan, Saul had, Saul had no faith in God. But Jonathan has this audacity, this chutzpah, this audacity to work for God because he believes that God can save by many or by few. But what exactly is the spiritual condition of Saul? See, what Saul has that Jonathan, that Jonathan has is faith. But Saul's faith is faith on the ritual of sacrifice. Because in chapter 13, he offered sacrifice because he was thinking that the only way to win the victory is to offer first sacrifice. 
His focus is on the protocol of sacrifice, not faith in God. Now, what do, we, what do I mean by that? Saul was more concerned with completing the ritual, not because he wanted to please God, but because his main motivation was to offer the sacrifice so that he can win. Offering the sacrifice for him is just another box to tick off so that he can do what he needs to do. Now, this is very interesting to say the least. This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 29 verse 13. This kind of character. Isaiah 29 13 said, And the Lord said, Because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It is possible to offer something to God, to worship God with only your lips, but not with your hearts. Saul is in this category. He wants to offer sacrifice only with his lips and hands, but not with his heart. Expediency. He doesn't mean it. That is exactly what Jesus also said in response to the religious leaders concerning traditions. Now, don't get me wrong. I love traditions. Certain traditions are good, but not all traditions are good. But any ritual or any tradition, when it's not done with proper intentions, it can become a mere empty ritual. And that's what I'm trying to talk about. Empty ritual. Have you ever heard of the phrase, prayer is powerful? Yes? Prayer is powerful. Cool. What do we mean when we say prayer is powerful? Or why is it that we always ask the pastor to pray? It's because subconsciously we think that the prayer of the pastor is powerful. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Why is it important? You see, if we say that prayer is powerful, I think the underlying principle is that we are treating prayer or the act of prayer as a necessary ritual for God to act. Then if that is so, how is it different from the idea of a genie in a bottle? How is it different from magic ritual? Listen, prayer is, does not answer prayers. God does. Prayer is not powerful. God is. The act of prayer is not the one that answers your prayer. If you happen to have a long layover in, layover in Japan and decided to visit the shrines, you got to know about this because I learned this the hard way. I was once an ignorant tourist. I went to Kyoto, Japan, many years ago. I went to visit this famous Fushimi Inari in Tokyo. Anyone been there? Fushimi Inari. It's very famous for its 10,000 torii. Torii is the, the arch gate of Fushimi Inari. Now, Fushimi Inari is the name of the kami. When the Japanese say kami, it's the spirits who are residing in that place. When you talk about spirits, we're not talking about angels here, right? So the Japanese believe that Fushimi Inari, the name of the spirit, is the one who is overseeing Kyoto. He is the god of rice and fertility. So there's this shrine that is dedicated to him, the Fushimi Inari, Tori is the red gate. I'm seeing it's the picture. That's the red gate. The Japanese believe that when you enter this gate, you're entering the realm of Fushimi Inari or the realm of the spirits. So 
if you're a Christian and you want to visit this place, you've got to think again. You're entering the spiritual realm. Now, this is not a joke. I have, I have a story to tell you next time, but, but this is serious. When you go there, beside the shrine, there's a fountain with running water. I made a mistake of, because I was ignorant again, I made the mistake of drinking from the running water. It's not for drinking, it's for ritual purification. So the Japanese would go there, they would pour it on their hands and wash their hands, even though it's not dirty. Symbolically, they would wash their hands and their mouths, because before you go to talk to the Spirit, you have to have clean hands and clean mouth. Same in some, pure heart, clean hands, clean mouth, right? So there's this symbolic idea of purification. When you go to the shrine, there's a protocol for prayer. You bow twice, you clap twice, and you say your prayer, you clap twice, you bow once, and you're done. Bow twice, bow twice, and then say your prayer. I'm not teaching you so that you can go there and do it properly, okay? I'm telling you because this is important in the ritual of prayer. The idea is that prayer is not just a ritual. Prayer is our expression of our dependence on God. It's not that you have done the deed, you prayed, and then that's it. Take off. One for the day. One list for the day. Prayer. This is very interesting. You see, a devout Muslim prays five times a day. A devout Jew prays three times a day. A devout Hindu, twice. A Buddhist, once. And if I ask what a, what a devout Christian does, how many times do we pray in a day? Pastor, three times. I eat three times. <laughs> but you see, this is not just about eating. This is about really communing with God. Have you ever gone out of your way or really scheduled a time in the day where you want to meet with God because you believe that God is not just incidental in your life, that God is priority, that's why you want to seek God's will? Have you ever done that? See, this is a reason why prayer is an expression of our faith. It's not just the ritual. And I'm not saying that we forget the form and protocol of prayer. What I'm saying is that the posture of the body must be the same as the posture of the heart. Because if it's just the lips, without the heart, it's just ritual, empty ritual. Prayer and heart must go together. This is what Jesus said exactly in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Let me read to you. He said, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. It's not about the words that you say or the eloquence in praying or the proper words to address God. God already knows what's in your heart. We don't have to flatter God. You flatter the one you're trying to win. I mean, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, your husband or your wife, but not God. God can see through the heart. Flattery cannot guarantee an answered prayer. You see, God is not impressed when we praise Him or thank Him, but we don't mean it. In fact, it's better to say a few things and mean it than repeat ourselves as if God doesn't get it the first time. There's a common 
common understanding that the longer you pray, the more God will answer your prayers. It's not true. There's no guarantee to the length of your prayer. Now back to Jonathan. So when Jonathan told his armor bearer, maybe the Lord will work for us, it's not because he was uncertain of God's help. It is because he was uncertain of how God will work through them. He knows that God is, is faithful. He knows that God will not abandon them. But he just doesn't know how God will do the strategy to win. But what he has is faith. And what faith does to Jonathan is to surrender the will of God. Surrender to the will of God. That's what they have and that's what they did. They both understood that the marching orders was to destroy the enemy. And they both believed that God can accomplish great things with just two of them compared to the 600 trembling soldiers in the camp of Saul. And so when they attacked the Philistine garrison, they killed 20. Let me read to you verse 15. When they attacked the Philistine garrison, it says, And there was panic in the camp and in the field and among the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth trembled. And it became a very great panic. So there are three things that are important here. Trembled, the earthquakes, and great panic. See, in Hebrew, there's only one word. But it was translated differently. The word for that is karada. Karada is panic. So the, the earth panicked, the people panicked, and there was a great panic. Again, what do we say? when it's, a word is mentioned three times in Hebrew literature, it's complete. It's like saying, good, better, best. This is complete panic for Israel, for the Philistines. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise because this was how Yahweh operated in the past. If you remember, Joshua, in Joshua chapter 10, routed the Amorites because God sent panic. So, the Amorites killed each other in confusion. The same thing that happened uh, with Gideon in the Midianites. Judges, when Gideon, from 20,000, Gideon trimmed his soldiers to 300, and God worked with the 300 to defeat 120,000 Midianites. How did God do that? Panic. So Jonathan knows that God has a reputation for doing this, for doing this kind of strategy. So when Jonathan attacked, God sent confusion and panic among the Philistines, so much so that in broad daylight, they fought against each other. They drew swords against each other. And at that moment, Saul was on the other side. He was just looking, and he saw there's a commotion. There's something going on in the Philistine camp. Verse 18. So Saul said to Hijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, a tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Now, in the earlier chapters, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the actual Ark, was a Kiryat Yerim. But sometimes the word for Ark also is used for the 
ephod of the priest or the, the vestment of the priests. So that's why if you're taking notes, in the earlier passage of chapter 14, it says that Ahijah was wearing an ephod. So it's the ark that's mentioned here. But more than that, Ahijah was also carrying the urim and the thummim. What's the urim and the thummim? You know the dice that you use in, in Las Vegas? There's, a, there's, a, there's something like that, a urim and the thummim, with the high priest. It's, it's found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. There's two stones that contains a name that the priests are, are authorized to use if they want to seek God's will, and, and God can say yes or no. So there's this die stone something. Now, the scholars would say that it's, it's very hard to, to pinpoint how it was used because there's no demonstration from the Bible how this was used. But it's mentioned many times in, in the Bible. When Saul told Ahijah the priest to withdraw your hand because he was already trying to consult God with the Urim and the Tumim. So think about this. Recreate the scenario. There was panic in the Philistine camp. Saul saw the, the Philistine panic. And so he said, come on, let's consult the Lord. And as in the middle of consulting, he said, I think we can go there already. So stop consulting the Lord. Shut him up. Let's go there. That's what Saul did. He shut up the Lord. He did not proceed to consulting the Lord just because he saw an opportunity to win the battle. He saw the confusion. What is it called again? Expediency. The end justifies the means. It doesn't matter what God says. What matters is the end result. Now I'm thinking in the same way. Have we also been acting like Saul in this way? Because it doesn't make sense. The reason why he broke the protocol of sacrifice in the earlier story was because of expediency. He broke the protocol because the soldiers are scattering. Because Saul was late. Now he's breaking protocol again because he saw the opportunity and yet God has not given any go signal yet to him. What does it mean? He treats God as incidental in his mission and therefore consulting God has become optional. How many times have we treated God as incidental to our plans? How many times have we acted as if prayer and seeking God's will is just an option? You see, whether you agree or not, some of us who are believers have made major decisions in life without even consulting God if this is God's will or not. Why do we do that? Because of expediency. If you have a problem right now, what do you do? If you say, say you feel something weird in your body, what do you do? You Google it, right? Like I do. <laughs> you Google it. Why do I feel some tingling in my toes? Why do I feel so... And what do we do next? Either we set an appointment to go to the doctor or buy a medicine at CVS or something. But when, where is the seeking for the Lord? If we are to make a, a major move in our life, like getting married or planning to buy a house or moving somewhere else or you know, trying to find a job, do we seek God? Or do we see prayer as merely incidental or an option? See, God's will is very important here. You see, 
The passage starts with the military bankruptcy of Israel. They have no swords. And yet the ending of the story in verse 23 said, So the Lord saved Israel that day. This is the end point of the story. The Lord saved Israel that day. This practically echoes the confession of Jonathan to his armor bearer. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That means no matter how you look at it, God cannot be incidental to our lives. No matter how you look at it, seeking the will of God is never an option. Breaking protocol for the reason of expediency is always wrong. The narrator has given us all the bumps on the road, all signs pointing in one direction. That is, man has rejected God. Man has chosen their own king. But because God is rich in mercy and forgiveness, in obvious defeat, even though there's only one ending to this, God has chosen Jonathan and his armor bearer to give victory to the Israel, to redeem Israel that day. See, God has, God has the habit of working on the impossible. Do you see yourself in a difficult situation right now? Are you hard-pressed by circumstances that you are facing right now? If you do the math, there's only one logical conclusion. Now, I may not be a prophet like Samuel, but I'm telling you right now, God can save by many or by few. God can heal by many or by few. God can work out the problems by many or by few. God can heal relationships by many or by few. God can revive our tired soul by many or by few. God can help you through the most difficult situation in life by many or by few. See, I'm not Jonathan either, but I can, I can tell to his armor bearer, if you are his armor bearer, same thing, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Come, let's go over to the garrison of this uncircumcised. I'd probably say the same thing to you. Come, let's seek the Lord. Come, let us pause and think and seek the Lord. Come, let us pray together. Why? Because it may be that the Lord will work for us and nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Is there anything that's impossible right now? Is there any difficulty you're facing right now? This is the message of the Lord today. There's nothing that can hinder from the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you every Sunday. We hail your name to be majestic. We confess, Father, that you are great in everything that you do, that you are sovereign, that you are gracious, that you will always forgive, that you will always welcome us. Father, we confess also that sometimes we forget that we relegate you to the incidentals and optionals. Father, forgive us. Help us see how we can fulfill this reality in our lives, to seek God's will, to make Him our priority, to really heed the words of Jesus Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things that bother us, all the problems that bother us, all the difficulties ahead of us, all the problems that we are encountering every day, all these things is nothing compared to how if we prioritize you. Father, I pray 
that you will open our hearts and open our minds, open our spiritual eyes so that we can see that you are God, you are powerful beyond measure, that we don't have to trust ourselves or trust other men to do things for us because we can trust you. And we echo the cry of Jonathan. Maybe that the Lord will work for us. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Stop, you never stop working. You never stop. You 